0: I'd like for you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. And our study tonight in the life of David has to do with this song he composed. All kind of fits together, I'm assuming. That's the way God planned it. The 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel. You can um, detect by now from, if you read this, the shadows of age and pressure are are falling over this man's life. He's getting old and he's tired. And I suppose that what we are finding now in this chapter is the man coming to the twilight of his years and he knows that most of the... the, um, productive time of his life is behind him. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That you've come to a time in your life where most of the production of your life is already gone, is already been. And I think that he's wondering, is David, you know, what is the purpose of my life now? I've done most of all that I'm going to ever do. I've run most of the race. I've Uh, accomplished most of the things, I've fought most of the battles that I'll ever fight. What is the purpose of the twilight years? It's a question that every one of us who has (laughs) reached the twilight years have asked. But he's not dead, and as long as there's a breath in man, God still has a purpose for his life. And it is at this point in David's life that he composes some of his most glorious music. Now David is a musician. He has been one since childhood. As a matter of fact, the first job he ever held was a job in Saul's court as the chief musician. He's always been a musician, but he has never composed such glorious music as he does in the twilight years of his life, and that's his purpose for life. And this 22nd chapter of Second Samuel uh, is, the, is this marvelous hymn that he wrote. It contains 51 verses. It's not, it's not like the hymns we sing where you get you know, a hymn and you get a stanza and you get the chorus and you get a stanza. It's everything, you know, there's 51 stanzas in this magnificent hymn. Now, before we get to the hymn, I want to do some things with you. I want to show you some things. I want us to consider first of all the preliminary experiences prior to the writing of this song. Now now, don't don't glance down and see what the song is about. I want us to get two things before we get there. I want us to, to, to nail down the preliminary experiences that are in the immediate context of this composition and then I want us to see the times which he lived. There are four preliminary experiences. One is found, the first is found in the latter part of the 18th chapter and in the 19th chapter it is the death of his son. His beloved and favorite son has died. He's been murdered. It was a breaking experience for David. One of my professors at the seminary was named John Newport. He had a brother named Russell. Russell Newport was a a magnificent voice he appeared on the Ed Sullivan show on television magnificent singer and he and his wife loved longed to have a child longed for a child and and later on in their life when they were you know late in life they she got pregnant and they had a child it was the you know as they prepared for that child it was just so exciting when the child was born it was detected that the child had severe retardation, was severely mongoloid. And those who heard John uh, Russell Newport after that child was born, after the experience of that breaking moment in their life, said that the, the, the tone, the melody, the quality, the beauty of his voice was was tremendously magnified in that Here is a man who lost his son. The second preliminary event was the betrayal of his confidant by the name of Joab. It's found in the 20th chapter. His true colors of character are being revealed. This, this uh, commander in his army betrays him, turns on him is a traitor. His true colors are revealed. The third preliminary event and the writing of this song, now he's getting ready to write a song now. These are the things that are happening. A famine comes in the land. He's losing his nation. For three long years they, they went without rain and the land was parched and dry and the rivers dried up and the cattle and the people starved. It was a time of tremendous famine. The fourth thing occurred is found in the 21st chapter, verse 15. War broke out again with the Philistines. They went to battle again. And the scripture says that, you know, there's a little tag in to verse 15. If you just glance at that 21st chapter, it says, And David became weary. I can imagine, because after all, he's only human. And a human being can only take so much. And now he's old and he's tired and he's wondering what's the use of it all. You know, what's the purpose of my life? Those are the preliminary events of the song. If you look down in chapter 22, you'll find the, 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 the times in which the song was written. He describes them beginning in verse 5. It was a time of death. It's really a violent time. He talks about, in verse 5, the torrents of destruction. Verse 7, he calls it the day of distress. And verse 19, the day of calamity. Now, here is a man who has had all of these things happen to him in the immediate context. And this day in which he lived is a day of violence and distress and calamity and death. Now, what kind of a song do you think a man would compose with that kind of background I mean what's this song I'm not a composer of music but I wish I were there's sometimes when I have such you know feelings that I would like to you know put out in a song deep feelings and you have them what would a man what would his psalm be like what would his hymn be like if he had this kind of background there are three kinds of psalms most of the Psalms are fit into two categories of David. One is this agonizing cry for help and blessing from God. That's not here. The second is this bitter complaint to God because of, uh, of how he feels about himself and how he feels about God. That's not what this is. But what this psalm is, this great hymn, is really a hymn of praise and victory. Kyle and Dalitz, the great German theologians, in their commentary says, in the following psalm of thanksgiving, David praises the Lord as he is delivered out of danger during his agitated life. I love it. And out of this man's agitation and distress and problems and pain and suffering and breaking, out of this comes this great hymn to God of praise and thanksgiving. No wonder this man is a man after God's own heart. Now what we've tried to do, if we've studied the life of David, is not just to list some of the historical facts about this man, but to try to discover what is there about this man's life that impressed God so greatly. Why is this man a man after God's own heart? Well, it doesn't take you long to get into this to find that the kind of man that is a man after God's own heart is a man who can praise God with praise and thanksgiving in the midst of the deep, deep distresses of life. Now there are four themes in this psalm that makes up Chapter 22, 51 verses, and these four themes really are the char- are, are themes that characterize this man's life. It's what he really believed. I want you to jot this down so you can take it home with you. First of all, in verses 2 through 20, this theme, listen to this when times are tough, the Lord. Is our only security. When times are tough, the Lord is our only security. Now, He uses several terms for God that are unfamiliar to us. He calls Him a rock and a fortress and a deliverer. Now, those are terms that we, you know, we can't really identify with and our uh, modern culture, modern society, a rock and a fortress and a deliverer. But they were terms which to the Hebrew meant that God is this s- secure heavenly Father. And I want you to pick up reading with me in verse 12. We'll just read down. I just want you to get the feel of this. Now remember that he's going, the nation has gone through three years of famine. Now watch what he said. And he made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then channels of the sea appeared, the fountains of the earth, foundations of the earth were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord. The blast of his breath, the, 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 the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me, drew me out of the waters. He's what's he doing? He's he's sending rain on this parched earth. I want you to look at verse 20. He also brought me forth into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Would you underline that? It's hard for us to understand that God delights in us. He loves us. Um, we have all these images of God. Most of the time our images of God are this, this person who is just kind of angry and you know, and wants to catch us doing something wrong. That's our concept of God. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a song, there's an all-seeing eye watching over you. And I had this idea of this cycloptic deity, you know, with one big eye, you know, in the center of his forehead, you know, just watching me all the time to see if he could catch me doing something wrong. It's what Nietzsche calls this God who, he says, peers through a knothole at our nakedness from which we try to hide. I asked a man one time who was, you know, in this, you know, this deepest distress of life and had this terrible self-image. I asked him. I said, "If, if one day you were all of a sudden you heard a voice behind you and you turned around and God was there, what kind of an expression would He have on His face?" Without a moment hesitation, he said, "He'd be frowning." So that our concept of God is this kind of deity that's so unhappy with us and frowns all the time and delights to see us hurt, catch us in a wrong so He can punish us. God's not like that. He delights in us. He loves us. He wants to forgive us more than we want to be forgiven. He wants to accept us more than we want to be accepted. He has more love for us than we even have for ourselves. He delights in us. And somehow we need to get that down inside of our gut. I have this, you know, for the longest time I have struggled with this idea. I've I've had a conceptualized idea of grace. I, you know, between my ears I understand grace and justification by faith and mercy and forgiveness. But the rest of my body hasn't heard the gospel yet. You know, and I have a concept of grace. I've had a concept of grace, but not as an event in which I, I, I an event in which I experienced. I've just finished reading a book by John Claypool. He was a contemporary of mine in Fort Worth, a great preacher, tremendous preacher. And for years he lived with this poor self-image, this terrible image of himself. And he told about it. One day he got with some some preachers in, in, in Louisville, he was pastor there, and they were from other denominations, very successful ministers, and they all got together. And they began to share how empty their lives were and how they'd been striving for acceptance from their, from their peers and from their congregation. And one day he said, I finally got up enough nerve just to lay it all out that I was a miserable person felt like I was a failure, that God didn't love me, all those kinds of things that we all feel. He said, when I finished, the Episcopal priest said to me, John, you know what we need? He said, I was struck by the, the fact that he said, you know what we need instead of what you need? He said, you know what we need? We need to hear the gospel all the way down to our gut. He said when Jesus said you are the light of the world, He didn't say you're to be the light of the world. You're to be number one so you can be the light of the world. He said you are the light of the world. He said we need to get that all the way down, internalize that all the way down inside of us. Now this man writes this hymn of praise because all of a sudden it dawned on him, God delights in me. He loves me. He's thrilled about me. He thinks I'm special. He thinks I'm something. In fact, he says in another place, even if my father and mother forsake me, he will not. When times are tough, God is our security. Secondly, when the days are dark, the Lord is our only light. Verses 21 through 31. I want to read verse 29. Look at this. For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. How dark does it get where you are? How dark is your life? How dark does it get where you live? There are sometimes I think that probably some of us feel like we can't make another day, right? And it gets pretty dark sometimes. And there might be some of us who feel like that about the only light they have is the light of the next step. Life by the yard is hard. Life by the edge is a cinch. The Lord is our light. Um, Charles Allen has written a book on the 23rd Psalm in this book he says uh, you know there's a chapter entitled you're not alone and he he tells about some of the expeditions that Admiral Byrd made to the polar regions and in those expeditions all alone at the top of the earth he, he got depressed and he was lonely and he worked through this and this is what he said he said, I solved my loneliness by changing my thoughts. When negative thoughts began to, ch- to charge my mind, I repelled them. Instead I filled my mind with thoughts of the presence of God that I wasn't alone. Suddenly I had a feeling of confident quietness within. The outer darkness, the outer situation was just the same, just as dark, just as desperate. But it didn't look as difficult for something had happened inside my mind. What had happened inside of his mind was this, that he began to sense that he was not alone, that the Lord was there. And he composed this little poem, Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Just walk beside me as my friend. What a marvelous discovery. In the dark nights of a man's experience, to know that the Lord is there and He's not alone. Margaret Clarkson spent three decades writing to singles. Singles, I guess, you know, I don't know whether they are or not, but I've always thought they must be lonely. <laughs> I'm always worried about my daughter. She's single, you know, imagining that she's lonely. Uh, I know if I had lived alone, I would be. Margaret Clarkson wrote for, th- for three decades, has written to singles, and, and she wrote this little thing. Now listen this this one she said. The comp- I try not to have too many days of such isolation, but sometimes they are inevitable. These hours, however, are usually very happy. We, we don't talk only of spiritual things, he and I although that's a part of each day's fellowship. We keep up a running fellowship all day long. Whatever I may be doing, I'm constantly needing His help with this undertaking or that habit or this attitude. He's always available. He helps me with such particulars as reminding me that I left the iron on, that I should run an errand or make a phone call or by jogging my memory of where I set something down like my glasses. Together we enjoy the beautiful things with which He has filled my life. Fine music, the soft feel of a furry body, the soft amber evening sky, the friendliness of a crackling fire on an autumn night. My heart is constantly reaching up to Him. He fills it with Himself. This relationship that I have with Jesus didn't come easy. I've had hours of loneliness, but in so much as I give myself to Him, He gives Himself to me. I don't know all the answers of human loneliness, but I know one, the daily, hourly, moment-by-moment practice of the presence of Jesus. Do you know anything like that? Do you have any kind of relationship with God that even approaches that? When the hours of loneliness When the hours are dark and we are lonely, He is our light. Third, when the walk is weak, when our walk is weak, the Lord is our strength. I want you to read verses 32 through 34 with me. For who is God beside the Lord and who is a rock beside our God? God is my strong fortless, fortress and He sets the blameless in His way. He makes my feet like Heinz's feet. The hind's the was a, this sheer-footed deer that, that, that patrol the high places. He, 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 sets my, he makes my feet like Heinz's feet and He sets me on my high places. In a very poetic way, He describes the strength, the ability that God gives Him to face whatever life throws at him, whatever comes in life. I'm able for it. I'm, I'm sufficient for it. The strength that God gives to deal with life. I want you to turn now, if you have your New Testament with you, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I I'll read one verse. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is Paul's, Paul speaking. Instead of a writing, he says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Let me give you a principle of life. And that is that God is never stronger than when you are weaker. His strength is perfected in your weakness and in mine. So that that God's strength comes to the weak. Philip Yancey has a book entitled Where Was God? Where's God When It Hurts? And he has a chapter in there entitled, After the Fall. It's the story of a young boy named Brian Sternberg. And it starts off like this, and we'll try to quote it. It says, it's amazing how a 10-foot fall literally flipped my life upside down. This is the story of Brian Sternberg. This young boy decided he, he, he was infatuated with pole vaulting. He watched it and he decided he wanted to be a pole vaulter. It was his ambition and goal in life to be a pole vaulter. And so he began to practice as a young boy and he became proficient as a pole vaulter. As a matter of fact, when he entered the University of Washington as a freshman, he held the freshman record in the NCAA in 1963. He vaulted 15 feet 8 inches, which in the 60's was a remarkable feat when he was a sophomore he was number one in the nation and he had unbelievable success in 1963 he set an indoor record in the pole vault and in spring of 1965 he vaulted 16 feet 8 inches and he was number one in both the NCAA and the AAU that's when it all happened one morning he told his mother and he rushed out to get in the car and he was going down to the gym and these guys worked out on trampolines to, to learn how to to uh, you know get spraying and to, and to fall properly so when they went over the, over the bar they could fall properly and he was on this trampoline and he went up in the air bounced up in the air and as he started down he said I lost control I knew I was in trouble landed on his head and he immediately knew he was paralyzed he said I could feel I could see my hands my arms and my feet flying in all directions but I had no control over them and he says as soon as I hit the floor he said I knew I was paralyzed and I gasped don't move me I'm paralyzed could hardly breathe they put him in the hospital for the next eight weeks he was in a what, it, what what's called a sandwich they put him in this device so that they can turn them keep him from getting bed sores he was totally helpless the only thing he could move was his eyes and his mouth. For three months he lived like that and he wished he could die. Life had come to an end for him. His family, of course, everybody was crushed by it. One day lying, totally helpless, he looked up to God. He asked for, for God to save him. He said I didn't bargain with God because I knew I had to believe in God not to make me well but because he was worthy of my faith and he gave his life to Christ. The long and short of it he began this rehabilitation still paralyzed, still totally paralyzed from the neck down but he ends this chapter with this statement. He said I take pictures out, pictures when I was a track star at the University of Washington, and they hold up pictures of me now, totally paralyzed. One is the s- sign of strength, the other picture is the sign of weakness. He said, If you looked at those pictures, you would say that the picture of me as a young athlete was the picture of strength. That's the picture of weakness. You look at me, totally paralyzed. With a vital faith in God, that's the picture of strength. When the walk is weak, He becomes our strength. And never is He any stronger than when you are totally helpless. One last theme, please. When our future is fuzzy, the Lord is our only hope. I want you to look at this one last passage. It's found there verses 51, 50 and 51 of chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. Read it with me. 50 and 51. Therefore, I will give thanks to Thee, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to Thy name. He is a tower of deliverance to His king, and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. When our future is fuzzy, he is our only hope. David's not bitter. He's come to the end of his life, and all of these things have happened to him. It's not been you know, this wonderful life that you envision when you think about the king but he dies with a song on his lips. He said, God is a tower of victory and a deliverance. The older you get, the more the future becomes significant. A few, months, a few years ago, I sat down with a guy in his office and we talked about, you know, um, young people and, idealism and all the things that are part of youth he said you know I I never thought this would happen to me but said you know as I get as I've gotten older uh, I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to me in the future and what about the people that I love what's going to happen to them as you get older, that becomes more important. I can remember when I didn't even think about you know, tomorrow, the future. I can promise you that what is out there tomorrow for me and what was going to happen to the people I leave behind is much more important to me than ever before. And I guess the cliche is this. we don't know what the future holds but we do know who holds the future and when the future is fuzzy our hope is God when it's out of our hands it's in His let's pray together Father We all could desire that we could write a song like this. An expression of our confidence in in you and our faith in you, our belief that you're sufficient for every need and for every stage of life. For some of us, times get a little tough. Help us to know that that You are our help. Times get dark. Help us to know that You're the light on a dark path. And, Father, sometimes we are very, very vulnerable and weak. Be Thou our strength. And help us to place all the tomorrows in Your hands with the confidence that you're the God of hope, that is, the God who is the source of hope, and the one in whom we can place our hope. Lord, I pray that for, for us you would be all that we need, because I pray in Jesus' name. I'd like to give you an opportunity of invitation tonight, and there are really three kinds of invitations an opportunity for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who died for you, left heaven's glory to earth's misery in order to be your Savior, to sacrifice Himself for your sin. He will save you from sin if you place your faith and trust in Him. I'd like to give you an opportunity to join the church tonight or to... Renew your commitment to the Lord. We might call it rededication or have a, whatever we call it. An opportunity for you to respond publicly to an invitation that God gives to your heart while we stand to sing. We invite you to come.